From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Adam Grogan, president at Greenleaf Foods, one of the largest plant-based CPG companies in North America with household brands such as Light Life, Field Roast, and Chow Creamery. Adam leads its strategic direction, financial performance, innovation, customer development, and distribution. So Adam, welcome to Lead with We. Oh, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. And Adam, I'm always intrigued when someone ends up disrupting or leading an industry where that journey began. And I hear that you're a little bit handy in the kitchen. So are you a bit of a foodie that way? And, and where did that begin? Well, I, I grew up in the food business. Um, spent my uh, one of the rarities in this world where I spent uh, the entirety of my career at uh, Maple Leaf Foods, which, uh, for your audience, may not be aware, Maple Leaf Foods is the largest uh, food company in Canada. We are predominantly an animal-based protein uh, company, and I started right out of uh, college, actually. Um, and uh, so I've I've lived over half my life in the food business, and so I guess. Uh, if that is uh, requires credentials to be in the uh, you know in the kitchen, that certainly I've earned my stripes there. Um, I've had a I've had a, a very lengthy career surrounded by chefs. In fact, when I first uh, started at Maple Leaf Foods, my very first assignment was in food service, and so I called on my fair share of chefs who've taught me through the years uh, everything that I need to know. So at home, I have two boys, uh, thirteen and fifteen. They got. They've got ferocious appetites, and so uh, I've certainly uh, done my very best to, to, to hone my skills in the kitchen and, and uh, feed these uh, two young guys uh, every day. So, uh, yeah, I guess I probably from the school of hard knocks more so than some culinary school, but I, I do pride myself in that. And, you know, why was food the lever of change that you chose for your career? Because, you know, there's no shortage of challenges we face, and there's no shortage of sort of solutions you could provide, but food seems such a powerful way to course correct our future. Why food for you? Well, early days, it wasn't, it wasn't about some of those more altruistic uh, views. It was, it was largely the fact that everyone had to eat. I mean, uh, you're surrounded by food from the day that you're born. And, uh, you know, for me, going through grocery stores was always a big thing. I, I loved it. I loved walking up and down the aisles. And, um, you know, I, I, I love to eat like everybody else. And, I just was very curious as to, um, you know, the food industry. And, and so when I had the opportunity to join the organization, it, for me, it was a natural fit. It wasn't something that I had dreamed about, per se. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it would be more convenient for me to, to go on about some of these large stories about how I had dreamed and I'd always lived my dream. It, it wasn't true, actually. I, when I was going through school, I, I assumed that I'd be, you know, an you know, consulting or investment banking, like every one of my other uh, business colleagues. But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, there's something so textural, so real about the food business. And, um, you know, I love it. I love everything about it. And, um, you know, it's always a center point of conversation. So I think uh, early days, that was what motivated me. That certainly changed over course of time. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a great business to be in. And I love what you're saying because, you know, not everyone wakes up one morning and says they want to change the world. And not every company starts with that original intent and, a, you know, clearly defined purpose and so on. So talk to us about at the Maple Leaf level or even at the brand level, that moment of transition where you saw the opportunity with plant-based proteins 
and the impact it could have? Well, actually, it started in 2016. I mean, and I think a lot of people that are surrounded within our industry that are aware of us, this might be a kind of an odd, um, you know, not an odd story. But I will tell you, you know, uh, Maple Leaf Foods is a hundred year old company. It's a very iconic up in Canada. We, if you were to walk a grocery store up in Canada, I mean, almost every brand that you would counter uh, in the meat case or in the frozen aisle, in a large part, would largely come from Maple Leaf Foods. But we were an animal protein company. And in 2016, we had a, um, a strategic offsite at the time. I was leading the marketing and R&D function uh, for the organization. And we talked about, you know, what would the company have to do over the next 100 years to be relevant, to have the same, you know, if not stronger market position? How could it change the world? How could it be uh, sustainable uh, to survive that long? And we all know being around for you know, the, the businesses that last and have longevity for for a hundred years are is remarkable. The fact that you can maybe be two hundred years would would require such incredible effort. And so, uh, at that time, we spent a great deal of time brainstorming what the world needed. And he, here's what we know: you know, by 2050, there's going to be nine billion people on this planet. It's going to require a seventy percent increase in food uh, to be produced to feed those individuals. And in our business, it was quite clear from the very beginning that. Um, in order to grow and to continue uh, to be a force over the next hundred years, we needed to pivot to be much more of a protein company. So now I would say, you know, that's a little bit more, um, the word protein seems to be a little bit more in people's vernaculars. But in 2016, we talked a lot about uh, cultured meats and, and uh, plant-based proteins. And in fact, we have an investment in insect proteins as well. And so we talked about that idea and um, and just what it would take to be around for another 100 years. And so we, we set this vision and this course to be the most sustainable protein company on earth. I really want everyone to hear loud and clear what you're saying, because at the heart of your, you know, your shift and your sustainability commitments is this core need to be relevant to the future. And if there's one observation I've made in our work with brands out there is that those that are leading the future typically are backing out of the future just as you described, rather than building on the past. It's not about incrementally innovating based on what you've always done, but looking very clear-eyed at what the next 5, 10, 100 years is going to look like and to position yourself for relevance and success. And tell me, you know, why does the food industry as it currently stands, why does it need to be disrupted? Well, I mean, there's, pretty, there's a lengthy list, and we have not been shy about sharing our perspectives on that. Um, but, you know, for the most part, uh, we're on the record. I've been on the record. And I think ultimately the food system uh, is broken. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of food manufacturers have lost the plot. Um, the notion of transparency and, and uh, sustainability, uh, you know, have not necessarily been high on the order of priority uh, for a long time. I'm glad to see some of that is changing uh, for sure. But the truth is, is that um, you know, where when you think about the fact that, you know, certain parts of the population are probably eating way too much and other parts of the population have food insecurity. I mean, there's just something fundamentally quite wrong with that. And the best food seemed to be kept for the urban elite as opposed to uh, for the general masses. And so, you know, for us, a big part of our mission and our vision for our business is to is to try in some small way. Uh, to to help fix that, whether it be our sustainability record, uh, whether it be the categories that we participate in, the notion of accessibility, uh, we make very significant investments in our center for food insecurity. 
Um, it's a big part of uh, the mission that we're on. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that we are here, uh, but I still think we have, I still, unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't believe this, but I certainly do, which is I still think we have lots of opportunity to repair that and fix that. Um, I'm optimistic about that. And it's a big reason why I've continued to be in the food business. The timelines we're working against are contracting towards us. You know, it's not like they're static and we've got this window of time. According to the updates to the sixth assessment from the IPCC report and so on, we've got like three years to course correct what's going on. So when you want to disrupt the industry, how do you approach it? Because it needs to be done in partnership with consumers. It's not something the company can do on its own simply by making new products or more responsible practices available. So how do you partner with consumers to drive this shift? Well, partnering with consumers is a little bit of a challenge because I would say that most consumers, although they have great intention and they certainly want to uh, help be a source of the solution around uh, environment and sustainability and and that type of thing, they also are trying to feed their families. And um, you know, and and I think it's important that as food manufacturers that we don't always make the choices sometimes. And this may be unpopular among some, but sometimes we have to make choices before the consumer is ultimately ready. Um, we got to look around the bend. We have a responsibility. Uh, you know, I love uh, what some of the large food manufacturers are doing and retailers when they come out with these very aggressive targets, they have the opportunity to change the industry and that tide rises all boats. And so for us, um, you know, consumers at the center of everything we do and they want to be helped along. They want to be met where they are but they don't want to be preached to and they don't want to pay massive premiums to, 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 to necessarily, you know, solve the world's issue. They want to solve their own personal challenges, both within their family and their community. So, um, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, it's, we, we partner with them in the sense that we provide them lots of solutions and opportunities uh, to make the right choices. But, you know, fundamentally, I think we have the responsibility uh, to lead, um, uh, lead first, even maybe they're not quite ready. The responsibility you talk about sharing is so powerful to me because I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, sharing in the benefits of stakeholder capitalism, but not sharing in the responsibilities. And every company has to show up differently, even as you say, if consumers aren't ready. And I know that you're a social purpose corporation. So what does that mean? And, and what did you have to change to execute against that? Well, that was a decision that we made very early on. Um, in, in 2017, we bought a company uh, called Light Life Foods, which uh, maybe members of your vegan and vegetarian communities would be uh, very familiar with. It's, uh, it was one of the pioneers in, in 1979, started by two hippies in Western Massachusetts. Um, and um, they, they did something that was really unique in that they gave a percentage of their revenue into profit, uh, sorry, revenue into, um, into charity. And uh, when we purchased in 2018, uh, the uh, Field Roast Company out of Seattle, Washington, uh, they had established themselves as a social purpose company. And we were really trying to figure out how do we bring these two organizations together under a common purpose? And well, we decided that we would register the organization as a social purpose company under Greenleaf Foods, under the, the umbrella and what that requires us to do is to disclose uh, a number of things that we do uh, specifically around uh, sourcing from suppliers. You know, for example, uh, we do we have an uh, our number one selling product in Field Roast is an apple and sage 
uh, sausage made with a wheat gluten protein source. And our apples are sourced locally in the state of Washington. So this commitment to local sourcing, um, transparency in, um, in, our, uh, in our social and environmental uh, efforts, uh, we have to report on them annually. Uh, that's, that's what we, that we do. But more important than that, um, and I think sometimes we get caught up in monikers such as the Social Purpose Corporation, which we feel very strongly about, but also B Corps. Um, they're about progress, right? They're about progress and reporting on that progress. Um, we've taken a very different approach, which I'm really proud of, actually. Um, and we've decided that we wanted to go carbon neutral now, not sometime in the future. Yes, we're going to report against our progress. And yet we're one of the very few uh, food companies in the world uh, that has signed up for science-based targets. And what that means is not only do we have very uh, transparent and hard uh, reductions in carbon, but we also, whatever we can't offset now, we offset it with high quality carbon credits. And the reason for that is because we believe fundamentally that although we're a social purpose corporation and others may be B Corp, which are making progress towards a, a destination, we've chosen that the issues are so important now that we have to act now. And so we have gone a step further from even that into a carbon neutral company now. And that is a really important move for us. It is an important move because I, I do worry about these 2030, 2040, 2050 timelines. We're just not going to get there in time. I mean, the IPCC report, the latest update, says we have three years to reach peak emissions, after which there's a cascading effect that's going to compromise all of our lives. And let's talk about carbon emissions because it's an interesting thing. There's a big, big concern around carbon offsets because... Some people argue, you know, it's kicking the can down the road in as much as they're, they're traded and you're offsetting what you're doing right now. And the larger concern is there's a repository of carbon already up there in the atmosphere that we need to draw down in addition to stemming the tide of carbon that's going up into the air. So how do you throttle on different cylinders to make sure that you're not only offsetting what you're creating, but reducing the amount of carbon you're creating in the first place? Well, that's it. That's it. You know, that's a that's an incredible question. I mean, it's something that we're all thinking about probably 24-7 on this end, and, and I'm sure within industry. Um, first and foremost, you know, just come back to the notion of, of carbon, uh, carbon offsets. You know, not all are created equal. I mean, there's lots of, I think, I think we have to be very careful. For us, it's all been about high quality uh, uh, credits that are, that are done locally. We actually share some of the projects that we've invested in. We invest in them both in Canada and the United States. Uh, so uh, that we've remained very close to the particular projects. But in terms of your, uh, your, your comment about, you know, what we can do now, like, you know, to get to this place faster, um, you know, these things, it's about progress, not perfection for us. So for example, um, you know, we've made investments in um, things such as, you know, we're, we've obviously invested very significantly in plant-based proteins. But plant-based proteins alone aren't going to solve the issue. In fact, they're still a very nascent category and, and actually haven't reached the, 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 the scale requirements that it can to reduce the amount of carbon that exists in other parts of the food chain. So we have a lot to learn from some of those, some of the others in the, in the, in the other industries, particularly even in the animal protein industry. And so some of the things that we've, uh, we've done is we're working on a, a number of projects uh, in the notion of regenerative agriculture. Uh, we've, uh, we've also are looking at sequestering, uh, emissions from, from our animal manure, uh, 
profiles to turn that into uh, methane gas. You know, there's a number of projects that are underway and things that we're thinking about on how do we take uh, take a food, you know, because food is a source, a significant source of carbon, and and make sure that we act on things now. But these things do take time. And so it's really important that we do both. And we're not shy about the requirement to do both. And I want to ask about that because I think, you know, your ambition to disrupt the industry is so important because it shows it's possible. At the same time, you know, you're, you're taking the operational costs, the expenditures, the time to do it because we're working against these very short timeframes. So give us a sense of some of those pain points. If you really commit to do it now, to get out in front of the industry, what are some of those pain points that show up and how did you navigate them? Well, there's there's a couple. I mean, I would say one 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 real important pain point right now is the fact that there's this um and this delicate balance between economics, economics and food waste. Uh and the notion of recyclable materials. And I'll and I'll give you a, and I'll give you a for example on that. Um, you know, we produce a lot of products today in what we term barrier films. And these are films so when you go to the grocery store today and you buy a package of uh, deli meats or hot dogs or what have you, and they're in a vacuum-packed package. Well, the film that's used is a multi-layered film that actually resists the notion of oxygen transferring that ultimately leads to spoilage. Well, those films are made with resins that come that are oil petroleum-based, and they're incredibly hard to, to recycle. In fact, many municipal programs do not accept them. So on one hand, we're struggling with this idea that we want to make food available and get the scale that we need to try to reduce emissions and make that available to everyone from coast to coast. And we want to do that in a very efficient way. On the other hand, we're using films that we know are, are not recyclable. And so we're partnering uh, with a number, of, um, a number of suppliers and academics to figure out what are plant-based options, plant-based uh, films that still support this idea of shelf life and spoilage, but are ultimately quite, uh, that are recyclable in most municipal programs. And that's just one example of the many challenges and, and natural conflicts that exist. Um, another one would be for us, every time we invest in capital or equipment or automation, there's an emissions component to that. For, you know, and so when I look at business cases, yes, there's a financial component and it's a very significant financial component but we're also measuring uh, uh you know utilization of energy uh and 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 waste as part of the calculus as to whether or not we make an investment um so on one hand you're trying to get to scale and you're trying to make reductions and get efficient on the other hand these a lot of these automated pieces of equipment take a significant amount of resource and so we're just constantly trying to find that appropriate balance and then, and that is it. Probably the magic word is the is is balance. Um, you know, you, you, at the end of the day, a sustainable business isn't just about the environment and you know and sustainability. And as it relates to that, it also means that it's sustainable, that it's a going financial concern. And we're trying to find that. Yeah, I think the notion is of shared value of bringing those two things together so that we can do better in this world. No, I think. 
this tension that you've exposed is so critical for everyone to understand because on one hand, you've got the responsibility of doing things differently. And on the other hand, the carrot side of it, if that's the stick of it, the carrot side of it is the relevance to the future. So pointing back to the economics, as you say, you know, when you sat down and you looked at how to be relevant and how to set yourself up for another hundred years, what was that business case in terms of the economics? Because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast may fail to realize that all of these challenges are actually marketplace opportunities in disguise. So you must have seen a growth opportunity there. And I think that's, that mindset is critical to moving forward. So what did you see when you sat down and looked at the next 100 years? Well, I think uh, I think it's important for audience to know. So Greenleaf Foods is a wholly owned subsidiary of Maple Leaf Foods. It's our plant-based arm of Maple Leaf Foods. We run completely independently out of Chicago. Um, and the reason I point that out is because I think when we make our investments in Greenleaf Foods, uh, it's part of laddering up to that whole idea that I spoke about earlier about Maple Leaf Foods, you know, lasting another hundred years and being being relevant in that hundred years. So I wanted just to provide that context to your audience. Um, you know, I think the, the the facts are these: is that the, the world population continues to grow. Um, there's certain parts of the world that are, you know, that are obviously increasing in their um, in their standard of living. They have a in, there's an insatiable appetite for protein in North America. And there's parts of the world that aren't getting enough protein in their diets. So the business case is quite simple, which is um, there's going to be a continuing demand uh, to feed and nourish a population. Um, and those that are thinking around the bend and trying to find solutions um, that ultimately can serve that market are going to be around for another 100 years. The difference being, though, is that as the, you know, I have a 13-year-old son, you know, and if one day we're having, uh, he's eating chicken chicken one day and the next day he could be eating, I could be making him a tempeh because I love tempeh. I'll talk about that later. But, you know, he could be eating tempeh. But to him, going, you know, it's agnostic. You know, it to him, it's just, it's just another meal. And this next generation isn't thinking about it as uh, certain types of diets or they think, they're thinking about it in the context of, uh, nourishment and food and protein. And so I think the business case is quite simple, which is the world is going to want more. we got to figure out how we're going to serve that world. And we need to do it in a sustainable way so that, you know, for, for many generations to come, we have a healthy planet. And, and so I don't think it's much more complicated than that. So give us a sense, you know, in the context of the urgency we've already spoken about, what does that growth curve look like in the context of adoption? Is it, you know, absorbing capex and opex costs for a while, and that sort of impacts your, you know, your bottom line, and then you know you've got that new positioning that will drive growth over the long term, or can it be dovetailed in? Because you're one of the leaders in North America in the category of food, so you must have sort of seen the shape of that to some degree. Well, of course, there's always going to be some investments that you have to get out ahead of the consumer. And we have done that. We've been on the record. We've we've made some investments in, you know, we talk about this and this idea of going carbon neutral now, which was no small feat. Um, and I, you know, I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish in that area, because to the point that you made earlier, it would have been very easy um, to just put a date out there or to, to only address uh, certain parts of our operation. I've seen brands here recently. Another problem with this food system is that, you know, you have brands out there that says, you know, I, I saw a um, uh, an alcoholic beverage manufacturer said, our distilling is carbon neutral. I mean, well, what about everything else? What about the scope one, scope two emissions? 
what are you doing about even you know helping support reduction in scope three emissions? And not to geek out on the audience, but the truth is is that you know one part of the of the item isn't isn't the solution. It needs to be all of it. So I think when we get into this uh, conversation, you'd say, well, there is times where we had to invest ahead of that, and that's an example of one. There's others where consumers are demanding it. Um, you know, it, there's there's um, you know as an example of that, it's just investing in plant based proteins right now. You know, it's been a market that's grown exponentially. People are very, I call it plant curious. Um, they are concerned about their own health and well-being. They're concerned about the planet. They're not actually animal welfare and other concerns or ethical concerns are actually further down the list. So, you know, we're in businesses, we're all in businesses to make money. That's not, we're a publicly traded company. But the truth is, is that um, I think if you find that right balance of listening to your consumers, finding out ways that you can incrementally do things over time, they're going to reward you with that. And we're seeing more and more of that, whether it's sustainable meats programs, whether it be, uh, you know, our plant-based protein businesses, um, you know, over the course of time, it's about finding that appropriate balance. And I said that balance word would come up again, because it's not just about investing ahead of the consumer or else you won't exist as a company. And so it's what choices do you need to make today? And what choices do you mean to make tomorrow? And that's, that's the, that's the holy grail of getting this right. You mentioned what consumers are demanding increasingly because they're so aware of the challenges that are going to shape their daily lives. Where do you start this process? Does it start at consumer demand through the lens of your brand at the green leaf level, or does it start at the enterprise level of Maple Leaf and the Maple Leaf sets a new platform on which the brands stand? Is it top down, bottom up? Great question. Um, it's a little bit of both. So um, like I mentioned earlier on, Maple Leaf, we, at Maple Leaf, we decided at that, at, at that point in time that we were going to set this vision to be the most sustainable protein company on earth, which had a lot of implications to it. Um, we defined what sustainability meant. Uh, we defined with the notion of protein and protein sources. Um, you know, we talked about even the word earth, uh, the idea of taking care of mother earth. And so for us, it was really important that we uh, define all those things at an organizational level. But we also made the decision to be a protein neutral company at a macro level, and then we then brought that down into the green leaf uh, foods. So if you were to buy a Light Life, a Chow product, a green leaf, uh, a field roast product today, uh, you'll notice a little moniker on our on our packaging. We are a carbon neutral company. Um, we uh, we obviously disclose all of our um, our our, our um, sustainability efforts in our in our reporting. But um, and then at Green Leaf, we've done it a little bit differently. We've taken an extra step, and I I told you I'd bring up Tempe again. You know. Uh, recently, we um, we built the world's largest tempeh facility in, of all places, Indianapolis. We spent $100 million uh, building a fully automated uh, facility. Well, that facility uh, uses absolutely zero. We have zero waste going to landfill. It's a zero landfill site. Um, we The water leaving the facility is better than the water when it comes in. Uh, you know, we have, we're running an all renewable energy. Uh, and the source of our tempeh is organic soybeans uh, from North America. So that's an example where we've where we've we've taken the the the, the lead within the Greenleaf organization to fulfill the larger mission, uh, and also for the larger mission to now be in, supplanted into the into the Greenleaf business. So it's a really symbiotic relationship. I mean, it's a really powerful shift that is as tangible as you can touch it. You've got these new facilities and so on. I think one of the intangible challenges to a shift like the one you've done is actually working with your suppliers 
who have, you know, especially when you're a legacy business that's 100 years old and helping them understand why the way things have always been done is no longer the way they need to be done moving forward. So, you know, how did you work with your suppliers, you know, being one of the largest food providers in North America, to bring them along with you and overcome the inertia within the industry itself? Well, I mean, we do have a big influence. I mean, I think this is where companies have to do a better job. The, you know, the Unilevers of the world, the Proctors of the world, the uh, uh, Walmarts, uh, you know, Costco, I think is doing great work in this area where, where you're working with your suppliers. When you, you know, for us, Maple Leaf, we're very small. A Greenleaf, you know, you know, there's three companies in North America that do over 60% of the plant-based proteins, uh, you know, in the grocery stores today, three of them. We're, we happen to be one of them. Um, but we're still relatively small in the grand scheme of things. We like to think of ourselves as big enough to have an impact, but small enough to do something about it. But when you look at these organizations or even what we did with Maple Leaf Foods up in Canada, you know, it's all about using your size and scale to be a good corporate citizen uh, and and almost forcing the industry to take the tide and rise all boats. And, you know, for example, we sat down with many, many suppliers and took them through our mission of what we intended to do. Uh, and, and, and then we did a, I call it a soft ask and a hard ask, you know, the soft ask was, look, come on this journey with us. We think it's simply the right thing to do for the planet. And the hard ask was, you know, ultimately we're going to choose our suppliers on the basis of whether or not they view the world in the same way. Now, I think that that's, that's kind of the path home. And I, and honestly, um, I think we've seen a lot of progress in industry, uh, because large suppliers have, or large manufacturers and large retailers have gone out to their own supply base and said, listen, it, you know, if you want to work with us, we, we've got to do things a certain way. And, and, I, and I think it's really, really helped to, to have that tide rise all boats. And you know, it's hard enough to make this transition as an organization and with consumer behavior when things are good and you're going up and to the right. It's even harder when things are going down. And as I understand it, at the end of last year, you know, meat alternative sales had slowed. So how do you withstand the pressure from investors or anyone inside all the stakeholder group to say, wait a second, we've got to transition back to the way things were done? Well, you know, transitioning back to the way things are done is really a, you know, an important concept to unpack because you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, leading into COVID in, in March of 20, you know, 2020 and even the year up to that, I mean, there was wild exuberance in plant-based proteins. It was growing at 30 to 40 percent. Um, and then through the pandemic, obviously, there's lots of trial, lots of interest. Uh, and then here recently, I think with the COVID unwind, it's, it's a slowed, uh, slowed uh, the market a little bit. But the truth is, is that, you know, our projection, you know, it's still very bullish. I mean, we, we view the market being sort of between 10 and 15 percent growth. And by any measure in the food business, that would be a highly attractive market. Um, but, you know, it just comes down to making sure that you make the, the right investments uh, in the appropriate investments and adjust your investment thesis to match that new growth vector. And there's certain things that are not negotiable. Um, and for us, what's not negotiable is our commitment to plant-based proteins, uh, our commitment to being a carbon neutral company. In fact, we recently here published our latest sustainability report. We've made tremendous progress. Uh, there's a couple of areas where I think we could even do better. Um, you know, so I don't think that part's the optional part of the P&L. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes we talked about earlier about making investments ahead of ahead of the business requirement. You know, you may be a little bit more careful in that area. I mean, you're not, you know, again, we talk about shared value. The company needs to be sustained in order to be sustainable. Um, so, so I would say to you that um, we've just gone through and decided 
uh, what are strategic costs and 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 make the make the necessary investments in that area. And in this particular case, you know, we're not walking back. We we just we refuse to. That's not part of our DNA. And you know, the only way that you're going to be a sustainable company is if consumers come on board more and more. The market forces reward what you're doing, and adoption continues to grow. And I noticed that you know. Um, through your field roast brand, there were plant-based hot dogs that are now available at Dodger Stadium and so on. So, I mean, that's a great that's a great step forward. And how important is those delivery formats in terms of changing behavior? Like it needs to be delivered in the format of a hamburger or a hot dog to give people the experience of what a meat alternative might be like and to make that choice. Well, you know, first of all, I got to go to the Dodger thing. Um, I, uh, I, I will tell you... It, I mean, can you imagine, I would never have imagined, I grew up, we talked earlier, we started, I mean, I grew up essentially my entire professional career in the, in the, in the meat industry and in the food industry, I like to think of it more so. And to imagine that the home of the World Series champions, uh, you know, has, have, has a Dodger dog that's plant-based. The good news is I think the beer and the pretzel are also vegan as well. So <laughs> I think you're in good hands there. I never thought the... Um, America's pastime would even ever see the day where that was possible. And I think I've even seen more and more articles. I think that same hot dog now is in about seven or eight major league ballparks now. And, um, you know, I think a big part of getting, you know, flexitarians to try plant-based options. I mean, 92% of all new, you know, consumers coming into this space are meat eaters. And when we talk to our vegan and vegetarian consumers who are the backbone of our business, the backbone of our business. What they tell us unanimously is if we can do, if we can provide innovative items that a meat eater may once in a while even just try uh, a meat alternative or a plant-based option, um, that's step in the right direction, a step in the right direction. And so I think for many uh, consumers, uh, you know, having a plant-based hot dog makes it a little bit even easier step over the over the proverbial threshold or a, uh, a burger in a restaurant, um, but it's only the beginning. I think that's a great way to get people to try and to enter and and to give it a shot, uh, if you will. But um, you know what I'm really proud of is the fact for us. I mean, we also have the number one uh, sliced plant based cheese in America. We have, um, you know, we were talking about tempeh earlier. Now we have a novel protein where somebody maybe you know maybe tried a, a Dodger dog, and then maybe you know had a burger. Then maybe had it with a slice of vegan cheese and and had a pizza. We have a you know recently signed a, a, a partnership here with Donatos in the Midwest, and then ultimately maybe you give tempeh a try. I mean, who knew, right? And I think that's part of the discussion we had earlier, which is how do you have a company that's relevant a hundred years from now, and it's by making the necessary investments in innovation. Um, you know, we recently built open the 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 North America's largest vegetarian innovation center up in the Chicagoland area, Chicago, which by the way, is the home of sausages, um, you know, <laughs> so Polish sausages. So, uh, you know, it's interesting just to, to, to think about um, being completely relevant and serving a new market in a different way and meeting consumers where they are, as opposed to preaching to them and telling them what they ought to do. And if you can bring them along that journey, I think ultimately it helps make the world a better place. And there's one other stakeholder group I want to ask you about, which is in the investor class, because we've seen, you know, companies like Danone in Europe lean heavily into sustainability and it's come at some cost. 
depending on what the issue might be. You've seen pushback in the UK against Unilever of late, you know, in and around how much they're leading with purpose and re-engineering their portfolio. What do you say to old school, shall we say, in inverted commas, investors who've got that short-termism mindset who want you to just up and to the right at any cost, irrespective of, you know, the cost to the planet or people? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I can't talk specifically about those. I am familiar with those uh, particular examples that you provide. Of course, I can only tell you how we view it. And our, our viewpoint is, is this idea of balance. Any company who's on a mission, on a larger, higher order mission, uh, to do greater good, has to put it in the context of having a viable business. And because if you have a viable business, you get to make more investments to make the world a better good too. So. Um, look, we view our investors, uh, and our CEO happens to be our largest investor, by the way, even though we're a publicly traded company. So he reminds me of this every day, which is about uh, this notion of shared value, which is, yes, we have investors. And yes, they, you know, many of our investors are institutional investors. There's lots of uh, you know, employees across North America who are expecting a great return for their retirements, right? Um, and, and we certainly, um, we take that with very, you know, high degree of seriousness, obviously, but there's the communities that we operate in, um, you know, for us, Greenleaf Foods, uh, we're one of the few plant-based companies in America where we make over 80% of our own food in our own plants. We have 600 associates across America and they want to be taken care of as well. Um, they want to be treated well. And so I think about it in the context of all of those things. You know, we talked about social purpose company, and that is all about this idea of taking care of our suppliers, making the right choices for the environment, uh, you know, looking at very aggressively looking at things like packaging and emissions, but also making sure that our investors are, are getting a, a uh, responsible return for their investment. And, um, you know, I think anytime you sort out stories where, um, where there may be challenges or pressure from the investors, I think it is easier to it's easy to say, well, you know, it's long term versus short term. But the truth is, is that maybe uh, there's something that's not quite in balance. And um, and and for us, uh, the approach that we've taken is to try our best to thread that needle. I I couldn't agree more. I think we need to mirror the balance that is a constant dynamic inside the natural world where not everyone gets everything they want all the time. You've got to have calibrated so that the whole can thrive, so the parts within it can still do well. I mean, given the challenges you face at a company level, enterprise or brand level, given you know the challenges like COVID and supply chain disruption, and given the challenge of you know consumer adoption at scale, what's the one thing that keeps you up at night? Because there's so many to choose from. What's the one thing? There's lots of things that uh, keep me up at night. I mean, the good news is uh, my, my two boys are a little older now, so it's not them. Um, but I, I would say, you know, we're constantly thinking about, um, you know, innovating and, and being relevant uh, for, for many years to come and making sure that we make those right choices. I mean, I, uh, I, you know, I talked earlier about being in this industry for a long time, you know. I I uh, I want to be proud about for the work that I do and and um, you know there's a lot of people that are counting on on our success uh, obviously you know our employees but also our investors and we talked about it, our suppliers and so uh, you know the thing that I think that we think about the most is should we be doing more can we be doing more you know are we going too far in certain areas you know maybe are we being a little bit too irresponsible. Um, 
there's a constant pull. We call it pulling on the tarp. You know, it's the proverbial people standing around and, you know, yanking the tarp one way or the other. And um, do we have, a, you know, making sure that we don't allow hubris to come into those conversations. And, um, you know, I, I think that's probably be the thing that's, that's, that occupies our brain the most. And, um, and do you, when do you lean in, when do you lean in and, and make some of those investments, even though, you know, sometimes consumers don't know exactly what they want until it's in front of them. Right. I mean, um, Steve Jobs was notorious at, at talking about that idea, you know, uh, consumers don't even know what they want right now. So how can you ask them? And I, and I, I understand that, but, um, that's a big, big part of, of, of our jobs, uh, as, as leaders is, is to constantly be, be pulling on that tarp. And, um, you know, I think, I think we get it right uh, more often than we get it wrong, but sometimes we get it wrong and you got to learn from that as well. And, you know, you've had such a storied career within the company at the parent company level and then across overseeing so many dimensions of the brands. Um, through this long journey, what would you offer as one mistake you would love us all to avoid? Because you've seen so much in terms of the company growth, the expansion of its portfolio, the transition to plant-based proteins. One mistake you might say, hey, I've learned something on the way. Avoid this one. And that's... I got I got a a mountain of of uh, of mistakes. I mean, uh, you know, kind of growing up in this business, I've uh, certainly had my fair share of product failures, which I'm sure at some point someone's going to reward me with the Hall of Fame of some of the things that I've that we've done. But um, you know, I think uh, listening to any one stakeholder is is uh, always leads you down the wrong path. I, I think you have to really. Uh, listen to multiple uh, multiple points of view and perspectives. Um, I think the only time we've ever uh, made a mistake is generally when we haven't uh, taken enough uh, enough risk and, and we haven't really leaned in and done something really bold. Um, and, and I and I'll, I'll provide a bit of texture to that. I think um, you know it, a lot of times you were talking about this idea of short term and long termism and you know we have a term we have a saying in our organization that you got to eat short term to live long term you know so it's, you're constantly trying to do the th right things today so that you can do the things you really hope to aspire to over time and that's that constant you know pulling on the tarp that we talked about earlier but i think f uh not being bold and and not taking some chances and and um uh you know making sure that you're too con if you get too concerned with the short term view and um you'll listen to every piece of research that someone puts in front of you or any listen to uh you know uh, the the accountants and the lawyers sometimes will steer you in the wrong direction you know you have to you have to be really careful about um you know looking at you know taking different stakeholder points of view and any time that we've made a mistake without giving you one specifically i'd say it's largely because either we weren't bold enough um, or we listen to one particular stakeholder over another and um, ultimately led us down the wrong path. So um, for us, it's, it's that, that'd be something that I'd be very conscious of, especially for people. You know, it's re really easy to get caught up and excited about um, solving the world's problems. Absolutely. It's very motivating and it's exciting. At the same time, you have to do it in a responsible way and, and uh, try to make sure that you're, you're, you're you know, delivering for all this share the stakeholders that are involved in that. And speaking of solving the world problems, with all the challenges we reach we read about in the headlines every day, what makes you optimistic about the future? Oh, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future. I mean, uh, I get you know, it's one of those things that uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of person. I, I think, you know, when you think about the technology, um, I'll give you an example here recently in plant-based proteins. Um, I, uh, you know, the food business used to be kind of the old business, the old, you know, talk about old school earlier. And, and um, you know, recently here, as I think a lot of people have realized that the food industry is a significant source of carbon emissions. The animal protein is actually one of the worst. Uh, yeah, even more so than some of the some of the fossil fuels, and um, and as there's been an incredible amount of interest in this area, I mean the amount of bioscientists and uh, intellectual uh, horsepower that's come into our industry uh, to try to solve uh, these things, such as cultured meat and uh, and plant based proteins and making them more functionally viable. Uh, um, uh, yeah, that's incredible. Like we've never had that. We had a lot of food scientists and, and animal scientists, and now we have all these other types of scientists that are helping us, uh, come up with solutions that I think ultimately will, uh, make, make the world a better place. I think that's a really great reason to be optimistic. Um, I think food and the food system itself, I think, uh, I love what I'm hearing from some of the other manufacturers and brands, uh, that, uh, the notion of having sustainability reports and the transparency that comes with that. I hope more of them uh, sign up for science-based targets and and are um, a little bit more uh, spe- you know specific in their in their initiatives and a little bit more aggressive. Um, uh, you know, I, the, I, North America has a really unique position in the world. It's the breadbasket of the world. I mean, you look at the amount of the source of wheat and peas and lentils and legumes that are available uh, in this part of the world. I mean, especially in North America, we have we control our own food sovereignty. And that puts us in a really great place to help lead the rest of the world. So uh, from my perspective, um, I think there's nothing but upside. And, um, you know, leading the green leaf business uh, for me is, a, is an absolute joy and a, uh, and a humbling experience because, you know, we get to steward two of the largest uh, plant-based protein brands in America. And I think that's our future. Adam, thank you so much for your time and your insights and for showing how a leading legacy brand self-disrupts to transform our future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. You can find out more information about our guest, Adam Grogan, in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to rate and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Plus, you can now find us on all United Airlines in-flight entertainment consoles as well. And be sure to watch our episodes on our YouTube channel, We First TV. Finally, if you want to dive deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. Lead with We is produced by Goal17 Media. I'll see you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.